Hello, and welcome to another edition of Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, managing editor Bridget Silverman, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is February 23rd, 2024. Pardon the pun, but it's been a long, strange trip for psychedelic drugs. Largely legal for decades, pharma is now trying to find pathways for approval of some of them. Bridget, you wrote a really interesting package on the FDA's approach to this sector. What did you find out? Well, uh, there are there are a lot of questions. Is is what I found out. Um, I covered a uh, meeting uh, hosted by the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA um, that was uh, largely sort of focused on uh, the draft guidance that FDA put out last year on development considerations for uh, psychedelics. They they you know it was, it, it was a very raising options guidance, not very directive. So uh, the um, FDA Division of Psychiatry uh, Director Tiffany Farcioni um, gave some some very interesting uh, presentations on the limits uh, of FDA's authority in this case, in, 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 the, in the case of psychedelics and um, the sort of particular uh, clinical trial challenges. And uh, a lot of the um, Clinical development problems with with these drugs come from um, not really understanding the dosing um, and dose response, and a lot of these things that are very basic to drug development. But these things are are out there and being used, and there's a lot of real world experience, but very little of the sort of basic um, dose dose response work, um, durability of effect um, is a big question. Um, you know, these have a, a slightly unusual paradigm of generally being a, a single dose or a single course of doses treating a chronic disorder. Um, so durability of effect, maintenance of effect is uh, sort of much more important in these clinical programs than um, perhaps in, in many. Um, and uh, all the FDA speakers really emphasized uh, that the agency has a lot of flexibility about what the actual trial package needs to look like, but they have uh, very little flexibility on um, sort of the end game of, you know, you need to, to demonstrate um, safety and effectiveness with, with substantial evidence. So, uh, you know, they, they talked about, you know, people can 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 do sort of try different types of trials to try to, you know, each one addressing part of the questions. Then uh, one of the other, you know, very, very big problems for uh, psychedelic drug development is that they're generally given in this context of um, psychological support. Uh, and, and most of the programs that are, are advanced um, have this as a, 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 an extremely sort of fundamental uh, uh, key. Um, Lycos uh, Therapeutics, which used to be the uh, MAPS Public Benefit Corporation um, has a, a pending NDA for uh, MDMA for PTSD. You know, they 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 talk about the psychological support as being, uh, you know, just fundamental to the safety of the product. Um, and that's important because uh, FDA has uh, is authority to regulate set and setting um, is pegged to safety. Um, FDA has very limited uh, control over medical practice. 
and uh, that's that is a, a, a big regulatory challenge. Um, also, just what control FDA has once they've approved something um, for how it's going to be used. And uh, uh, Dr. Farcioni noted that um, FDA can mandate credentials for clinical studies, but they do not have the authority to say similar credentials are going to be needed for similar roles in the post-market setting. Um, so you can see that there's a, a sort of Wild West aspect that is a, 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 a hindrance to drug development in this area. Um, but there's also a huge amount of interest and, and a fair number of, of, of trials uh, going on with, uh, you know, some some of them even beyond phase two. But it's it's really a phase two game right now. Yeah, Bridget, it was a uh, fantastic uh, package and I really uh, I commend everyone to look at the look at it. Uh, I was surprised at sort of how many uh, studies there were going on. I sort of heard about a few and, uh, you know, but there really is a uh, um a, uh, you know, several several dozen uh, pretty serious uh, um, projects underway. Just like w- as we talked about it, I guess it was uh, uh, last week, perhaps on the pod with uh, um, uh, marijuana. It does seem like it's uh, um, you know, sort of kind of smaller companies at this point that are sort of kind of pursuing uh, pursuing things for the most part. But uh, definitely a very promising uh, um, area of research. Uh, you know, I feel like if uh, um, push came to shove, FDA could probably use its REMS authority to uh, um, uh, try and restrict sort of kind of how uh, um, the uh, the psychological uh, support works uh, Actually, once something's approved. Um, but uh, what, did you, what did you hear about that? Uh, Dr. Dr. Farcione said um, that REMS is generally uh, not appropriate in this situation because for REMS, you have a known risk that you are mitigating and you have measures that mitigate that risk. This is something that's part of the therapy. It's not a side effect of the therapy. Yeah, I was at a conference too last fall where they, they were talking about this and kind of the, you know, the the growing enthusiasm about psychedelic, you know, drugs being used. And 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 Bridgie, like you said, that they there were a lot of conversations about, you know, like it would, you know, I administered whatever LSD, whatever drug, you know, it is that they're working on. And it was in the doctor's office. All the lights were off except for like this one, like, you know, and I'm making this up like it was like a strobe or something like that. Yeah. And and the patient took a nap for 15, exactly 15 minutes and then woke up and we had like another hour. And they said, how are we possibly going to like control that, you know, and put that in the label? Because there we don't know, actually, you know yeah. it's like that those kinds of things that they don't know. Can, it's not as simple as saying, take this. <laughs> this is what it's yeah. coming down to. Um, there was actually at the meeting a, a fair amount, and there's a, a talk about it, it's a little in the story, um, of discussion about uh, how can you possibly standardize concepts in the therapy support so that, you know, manualized um, you see a lot of uh, some of these companies have, have come up with, you know, a, a, a manual to support, you know, X therapy for, you know, anxiety or whatever. They heard from one uh, company, interestingly, is there's sort of an outlier, uh, MindMed, um, that has is working with uh, LSD and LSD derivatives um, for anxiety, where they are not doing any any supportive therapy. Uh, they say that they've done their phase two studies it, and, and you know, you still got the anxiety, anxiolytic benefit. So uh, that'll that'll be interesting to watch. And they're they're in that sort of phase two, phase three space. Um, 
phase phase two. Uh, but and you know another another challenge, especially on the set and setting front, is that uh, there are certain states, I believe Oregon, um, where uh, psychedelic therapy is now legal. And uh, then there are all these other actors who are also doing significant trials. Um, the VA system, which has, you know, obvious interest in PTSD, has has a number of uh, clinical trials where, you know, they, they're developing their own set and setting and, um, you know, seeing what they can do within in their system. And they're studying that rigorously. Um, there's a lot of academic interest. Uh, the NYU has a, a, a center for the study of, of psychedelics that um, is, is doing a lot of, 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 of research, uh, such as Johns Hopkins. Um, so, uh, you know, the fact that these are not proprietary base compounds means that there's just uh, all these different actors and they all have different approaches. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see if it can be sort of manualized or uh, gotten down to this one one speaker at the meeting was talking about sort of basic cognitive behavioral therapy concepts, because those have been, you know, sort of really firmly identified um, and, and tested in the literature. So it'll be really interesting to see. One of the other things I thought about was actually something we talked about last week, like Matt mentioned, when we were talking about marijuana getting an FDA approved indication if, say, that happens, you're prescribing the FDA-approved and manufactured product, not the one in the dispensary, theoretically. Yeah. So what happens if, and again, this is a probably an extreme example, but what happens if mushrooms get approved, magic mushrooms, and the person says, I'm not going to pay for that. I'm just going to go out into the woods and pick some. That, you know, if you could identify them, I know that's not easy either, but, you know, instead of paying for this, you know, yeah. I mean, again, th like these are questions that, you know, the yeah. FDA is probably going to have to answer. <laughs> and, um, un unlike marijuana, in, in a lot of these cases, um, what people are doing in the in the corporate side is uh, they've got a synthetic derivative, um, you know, or some downstream or pro drug so that it's it is a a proprietary compound um so then that proprietary uh obviously at some point the dea is going to be involved if these take off as anything other than you know oddities in the medical system and uh you got to think that those sort of thoughts will be considered by F, uh, dea if they are uh considering uh rescheduling any of these substances it's the same thing with LSD. I mean, you theoretically could score LSD, you know, on the street illegally if you wanted to. I, I don't know if that's still around or not, but you know, if if they they show it, it it works. You could theoretically do it. Um, well, I mean, you can you can you can go to Oregon and get magic mushrooms or uh, or <laughs> you know uh, uh, legally. You know, and, you know, again, like, you know, I think MindMed, I believe, is working with like, you know, they've got like a crystalline something, you know, synthetic, you know, so it would not be nobody seems to be following the botanical drug guidance, the uh, which I think is now three drugs have been approved ever um, in the last 25 years. You know, everybody seems to be going with a, a chemical synthesis sort of approach, um, although psilocybin, I suppose, is a different thing, but it has all these different metabolites that people are are you know, synthesizing. Bridget, one of the questions I had, I guess, um, you know, you brought up DEA is um, 
how on board the DEA is with sort of FDA approving these types of products and will they be open to rescheduling? What concerns might they have about like diversion or or so forth? Like, is that going to be an obstacle? Um, you know, particularly thinking about, you know, everything that's been going on in the country with the opioid crisis and so forth. Those are those are excellent, excellent questions. Um, you know, there there was there was actually no significant discussion of of DEA uh, at at the this meeting, which was you know focused on drug development issues. Um, but uh, you know, there's just uh, so so many challenging uh, issues that need to be addressed if these are going to become mainstream medicine. And I saw in your story, Bridget, that there's even an irritable bowel syndrome trial. Although yep. I, I'm I'm not sure I would, you know, psych- psychotherapy and uh, what is it, TRP eighty eight oh two for my irritable bowel syndrome, I might be all on board with. But you know, hey, if it works, it works, I guess, right? Um, and you know, FDA certainly views the therapy as a ser- as as a safety feature. So. Um, I, this is my, you know, boiling down, but that the the core function of having the people, having the, the facilitator there is so that you don't have a bad trip. Oh. Um, and um, then the contribution to the efficacy is where it needs to be sort of quantified. But there is a safety aspect of because especially because um a lot of these drugs make people very vulnerable and uh, suggestible mm-hmm. with all this like sort of therapy requirement all this stuff and i don't know if j and j's product has given us any sense but one thing i was wondering is like how big the prescription populations for these products would ever could ever really be in theory because they're not going to be that easy to obtain it seems like so are these going to be like smaller size market products, even, you know, that's what, I mean, it it struck me that not a lot of like of the really big pharmas are playing in this right now, but maybe that's just because they're earlier in development. But I was just kind of thinking about like how big the market sizes for these might be or what the pricing even might look like eventually for these products. Cause it just, it it doesn't seem like, you know, they're not going to, some of these products are probably not going to have the same market sizes like the, you know, oral antidepressants which are very commonly used, it seems like, in the U.S., given the difficulty around yeah. administering them. I mean, you know, most of, most of the indications that are, you know, sort of in, in development are, um, you know, it is, uh, you know, severe treatment-resistant depression, um, depression with, uh, you know, imminent thoughts of suicide, um, you know, severe PTSD. So, it, it it certainly is is not aimed at the um, largest part of the market, but once it's out there, it's out there. Um, you figure these have to be expensive because you've got you, you have to have the facilitators and somebody at the the meeting mentioned um, just mentioned. So this is not <laughs> reporting um, that the uh, Oregon program is already way over budget. You know that 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 just demand and cost uh, will be commercially uh, one of the many challenges facing drug psychedelic drug development. So yeah, I guess you know it's this is an interesting, interest another interesting emerging area. It it you know again this reminds me of I mean no one thought thalidomide would ever be approved for anything, and it managed to get on label 
you know, eventually once, you know, um, you, you know, despite the the tragedy in the sixties. So, you know, the, this is kind of, uh, I guess uh, the, the next frontier, so, so to speak, but, um, thanks yeah. for, for enlightening us on this. It's a very interesting stuff. Thank you, Derek. Next, we're going to discuss the Alzheimer's drug Agihelm, which is set to be withdrawn from the market in the coming months. Sarah, you found out some more information about what will happen to the ongoing uh, clinical trials. Yeah, so, um, you know, one thing that really struck me about this situation was, um, you know, I think a lot of people uh, who were frustrated with the Aduhelm um, initial accelerated approval felt wanted longer term data on this product and outcomes data. And um, it, it seems like you know, everybody would sort of be left kind of forever wondering, you know, if if the post-market study um, doesn't complete or at least doesn't report any results. So um, one thing I was wondering, given this, is that um, they are going to wind down the study, but it will have treated a number of patients. They also have this ongoing um, open-label study with people that have um, participated in some of their earlier phase three trials that is supposed to obtain, you know, some data on, you know, people taking this drug longer term. And so it it just would seem unfortunate if we never found out anything about what happened there. And there's also relevance to, you know, some of the other Alzheimer's treatments either that have just come to market or may soon be on market. Um, And so, yeah, I wanted to look into seeing what was the uh, responsibility via clinicaltrials.gov or any other sort of federal lever, I guess, to get that data out there. And it does seem like, um, you know, NIH wouldn't really directly answer my questions, but in talking to um, Deb Saren, who was the former former head of um, clinicaltrials.gov for a long time and helped, um, you know, work on some of the um, current regulations that um, Biogen will be responsible for, you know, reporting um, data um, and results from these studies, even if they're terminated. Um, so that's sort of hopeful. Um, and, you know, FDA Commissioner Califf last week at an event where we um, were able to talk to him at afterwards seemed to express support for that data, you know, being out there and the importance of that. Um, the one um, caveat I will say is that, you know, um, NIH has n- n- has not been known, I guess, for, you know, their strict enforcement <laughs> of, you know, these laws and regulations. So I guess, um, you know, Biogen sort of eventually, after first sort of punting to um, Neuromune, the company that they're giving the drug back to that initially developed it, saying they were going to be responsible for any future data releases. Um, but then they eventually sort of did concede that they are, will be, res- continue to be responsible for these clinical trials that listing and decommit to, you know, posting whatever data is required. But, you know, I think it'll be important to actually follow up and see that that happens in the time frame it happens, because we know that, um, again, in general, there's a lot of um, difficulty getting clinical trial data reported and pretty little enforcement from NIH on that front. I, I know you said there's interest in seeing what the data is, but is there was there any kind of speculation on what this could be used for? I mean, my first thought was like the control arm would be useful for future Alzheimer's trials, you know, especially, you know, whether it's as a comparison, like or a historical control or something like that. Um, I mean, but would the treatment arm serve any purpose? I mean, given that, you know, the drugs being given up on? I think, um, you know, again, these are 
this is a drug that, you know, has similar sort of mechanisms of action, right, to other things that are still out there or being developed and also has similar safety concerns. These um, amyloid, um, what is it, amyloid-related imaging events, ARA, mm -hmm. I think, Aria, as they yeah. call it. All right, so I think anything you learn from that, right, is probably going to be helpful and, and relevant um, for researchers thinking about, um, you know, moving forward. We also, um, Neuroimmune has actually said it plans to continue focusing on further development of this drug um, with a focus on subcutaneous administration. So, you know, I don't know, you would imagine that that data is going to be relevant there. So I'm not sure what, they haven't really released any additional details on what that development looks like. I don't, I don't know what, if they have any specific U.S. related plans or trials. But, um, you know, the drug isn't going to completely disappear. But I think, again, it's like it's always important to learn, you know, for if you have other drugs in similar kind of classes or in some, the same class out there, I think you'd want to learn as much as you can from this case. Oh, yeah. You hear the same thing with in the rare disease community where, you know, they, they want failed clinical trials published because, A, you get the control group, which is really hard to find, and B, you get some sense of where, you know, kind of what you can learn from the failure, I guess, is you well, know, the, the nice the, way to put I it. I guess the, the other thing, like, just to, like, make clear is that this is a commercial failure, right? <laughs> right yeah, now, yeah. At this not, point, not a right? clinical one. We, yeah. We actually <laughs> don't. I mean, and that I think to me is why it's a little bit disappointing that this trial won't complete, but we'll see how much data we can get from it. Right. But like, we're not going to get that really complete answer on whether it is or isn't a clinical failure. Yeah. <laughs> so again, I think that's why getting as much data as possible is important, right? Biogen is not necessarily pulling this because, you know, they realized, oh, it removed amyloid, but it wasn't, you know, changing cognitive function. That's not what happened here, right? Yeah. Um, we're, we're, not, we're kind of like missing that stage. They've just decided it, it hasn't Due to everything that happened with Medicare and its coverage and so forth, it's not really getting any use in the U.S. And um, they have other products in this space to focus on. So I think that's an important point to think about here as well is that. And, you know, as Caleb, um, again, when we talked to him last week, kind of, you know, mentioned that, you know, there is at least unfortunately, again, on that side of the coin, there really is no lever that FDA has to force them to finish this research, which I think, again, I don't know, it's a bit unfortunate for, you know, the greater kind of society after, you know, having all these other patients in the initial phase three studies and approving the drug to never really get that answer seems a bit of a letdown. Yeah, it'll certainly sort of go down as one of those uh, regulatory mysteries as to sort of kind of what, uh, you know, what uh, Adjahelm could have uh, um actually uh actually done for patients we won't uh, we won't entirely uh entirely know it uh, um it struck me uh you know when uh, Biogen announced they were terminating the uh um the product uh, discontinued pulling from the market uh, how far along the trial was you know it was uh, infamously had a very very long uh, runway when they uh, initially gave it accelerated approval but they did seem like they had uh, um you know, sort of uh, since then, sort of really sort of tried to kind of ramp up the uh, um, the pace of the trial, and we're uh, we're pretty uh, we're pretty well enrolled. Uh, um, you know, by the time they decided to pull the plug, so uh, um, you know there could be some good data depending on sort of kind of how uh, how much dosing and how much uh, follow up these uh, um, these patients actually got. Uh, and uh, as you're saying, Sarah, that there is you know some mechanism you know perhaps to get at least the data that they've uh, 
um, collected so far, uh, um, released, uh, you know, sort of kind of the nebulous world of uh, uh, clinicaltrials.gov and sort of kind of who's responsible for what, and uh, you know, is the government even sort of kind of going, uh, you know, going after those that are being irresponsible, and uh, um, you know, that's a uh, um, uh, sort of an ongoing issue. And uh, you know, I'll shamelessly plug uh, Sightline's uh, um, uh, TrialScope uh, disclosed product that sort of kind of helps people uh, navigate that stuff. So uh, um, you know, if you're sort of kind of uh, scratching your head as to sort of, kind of what you're supposed to be doing, uh, you know. Uh, um, that might be a good resource for you, but uh, um, it's a uh, um, uh, in the area that's sort of, because it's sort of, kind of such a high profile thing. I suspect there will be, you know, perhaps more than uh, um, there would normally be a real effort to sort of get this data out than uh, another sort of, kind of trial that kind of sort of, kind of just sort of quietly uh, closed the uh, um, closed its uh, its books. It's interesting you mentioned the like. Um the state of that, uh, the, the post-marketing requirement, I, yeah, the, the enrollment seems high, and you do sort of wondered, in my mind, is how much of that, uh, how much, and while they weren't helped on the commercialization side, how much did the Medicare decision um, around coverage with evidence development help them speed up the phase four trial, perhaps more than it otherwise would have, since that was really the only option for people to get the product? Yeah, it's another one of those sort of kind of, uh, unknowable things but in the, you know did uh, did medicare actually sort of kind of uh, um you know uh, you know accomplish that uh, you know through its uh, um through its coverage uh, um, announcement there okay so sarah can you can you ballpark it for me what are the odds that this data gets published somewhere whether it, <laughs> i mean you know we'll, i mean unless you're probably what unless you're actually looking for it on clinicaltrials.gov you i mean it's not like they'll you'll know when it pops in there i mean you'll have to Right, you can. Um, I think you can actually set alerts. Actually, um, I believe now to like for particular trials on clinicaltrials.gov. So um, maybe I should do that after we talk, um, finish this podcast. But um, so there are ways for somebody who's like particularly tracking it. I think um, again, um, there's a particular amount of time. It's in the story, you know, after sort of the study terminates when they have to report, and um, I. I think there's like some slight chance there are ways Biogen could get, you know, some extensions depending on exactly what else is happening with the product. But, um, you know, it's not going to be tomorrow or, you know, even, you know, six months from when, you know, they fully wrap up um, the parts of the trial that are ongoing. But um, I don't know. I'm like cautiously optimistic <laughs> that we'll <laughs> get some information. And again, you know, if Neuromune um, wants to keep developing the drug, um, you know, maybe they'll be more inclined to publish results in other places as well, if it's, you know, useful to them going forward. Yeah, very interesting. So we'll be we'll be watching. And thanks, Sarah. Finally, we're going to look at the FDA's newest advisory committee, which is for genetic metabolic diseases. Rare disease groups were excited that the FDA was going to create an advisory committee that can handle applications that largely will be for rare genetic disorders. They had been asking for a rare disease focus committee for years now, but apparently the agency is having trouble finding acceptable committee members. The deadline for nominations was February 12th, but the agency has extended it to March 12th in order to allow more time for qualified candidates to submit their materials. The FDA did not know when the committee chair and the members would be announced, but the agency said the committee will be ready should it be needed. And that could be soon because there are a few products with user fee goals later this year where an adcom could be needed. So 
we know names are being submitted. I, I've actually talked to somebody whose name was submitted, and he said he hadn't heard anything yet from the FDA. But I, I guess I'm I'm curious why you think you know the FDA, of course, won't say why, but the um, why you think the 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 deadline had to be extended. I mean, I'm wondering if maybe they're running into conflict of interest issues. Um, it's tripping up a lot of the a lot of the candidates, or you know, I don't know. Maybe there's some other reason that you guys can think of. The conflict of interest thing seemed to be a likely problem, especially you know, given what we've seen often in rare diseases. Right, is that um, the pool of specialists for particular areas is small, and they are maybe because of that more likely to also work with um, you know industry. Um, I also saw that like pharma submitted names for this, like the trade association pharma and. I sort of wonder how FDA ha- considers that, like on the what, like is that helpful or do they then like automatically think like that that person is more conflicted than not? Well, if they said they, su- pushing they, that said they name. submitted, they said they submitted for the industry, the non-voting industry. Rep. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, so, the, the 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 question arises when Nord told me that they they have like the they have rare disease centers of excellence around the country at various institutions and they said there's we have there's lots of names at working at those places well yeah they, i'm sure they're all doing research or consulting or whatever and the fda has to kind of make this decision you know how you know if everyone's conflicted how much conflict is too much conflict <laughs> you know because you don't want to be issuing like you know waivers for everybody you know when you first constitute the committee i guess the other thing we know that fda sort of been working on like revamping its advisory committees overall? Is there any reason, like, could something related to that broader revamp be slowing them down and getting this committee set up? You know, they don't want to, like, appoint people that fit under this older system if they're going to have a new system that might, for some reason, then make them think they'd want, like, a different sort of range of experts or types of people on this committee. Yeah, I also wondered too about the you know we just got done talking about Agihelm. I mean the the kind of if there was any discord among candidates because of the that advisory committee decision where the it was a different committee that they the peripheral and central nervous system drugs committee gave a a really negative recommendation of Agihelm before it was approved and then the FDA went and did it anyway and uh, approved it anyway, gave it an accelerated approval. And that caused a bunch of uh, three people, three members of the committee to quit in protest. And afterwards there were, you know, there was a survey done we wrote about where they were, you know, members were saying, you know, like, yeah, FDA, the reputation of FDA advisory committees has been damaged. That didn't seem to, you know, kind of quell their interest in serving on committees. But you wonder if in the wake of that, if you know, at least people are asking themselves more questions about, do I want to sign up for this, knowing kind of, you know, a little more about how it works? Yeah, it certainly sort of kind of uh, uh, reduced the, uh, the 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 value of serving on an advisor committee if you feel like you're going to be ignored and, uh, you know, sort of kind of uh, sucked up into a, a controversy sort of not of your own making. So, uh, um, you know, to the extent that sort of it's, uh, um, you know, diminished the, uh, um, the, 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 uh, the societal value, I suppose, of, uh, of of serving on those things, it sort of kind of it does uh, does make it less appealing to uh, to do that. Yeah, it's be it'll be interesting to see when they 
you know, when it actually comes out, the, the list of names and, uh, you know, some certainly we'll be watching to see, uh, you know, you know what they come up with on that front. Well, that's all for today. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and other podcasts on the Sightline channel in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Spotify Podcasts, as well as smart speakers if they are your default podcast provider. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Bridget Silverman, and Nielsen Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 